Our God is amazing. Our God is amazing. I mean, I don't know how your weeks go when you get here, um, or what you do on the weekend, or how busy or full your lives are, but our God reigns, and our God is amazing. Uh, and sometimes I think I'll come to church, and thinking about all this stuff, I'm thinking about, uh, um, you know, I've got to say the right thing, got to get my announcements right, got to get the welcome right, hope the music's sounding all right tonight. It's just like it just kind of takes my my focus off the one we're here for. Um, so as we come in, like, I always go through a process of, like, I just want to worship God. And there's all this stuff going around my head. And just to encourage you guys, it's, it is about worshiping God. Our lives, the ultimate aim of our lives is to glorify our God. That's it. That's why we breathe, is to worship our God. So when we come on Sunday nights, let's just choose to just praise His name. Give Him the glory. Just praise You, Father. Praise You, Lord Jesus. I just want to keep praying. Let's keep praying to God. Father God, we love You. Father God, we praise You. We've just been singing these songs about this God who reigns, about a God who is mighty, a God who is sovereign, a God who steps into this world and dies for us so that we could have relationship with you, we could have our sins forgiven. Oh, Father, we worship you, God. Oh, Jesus Christ, we praise your name. Oh, Holy Spirit, we love you. Father God, would you help us be a people that just praises your name? Help us be a people who with our lips we sing your praise and with our relationships we love one another and it sings your praise. With our lives when we work, Lord, may they sing your praise. Father God, just take us. Just take us afresh. Lord, we are sorry for the way we fail you. And we ask, Father God, that you would just take it all away. Take all the sin away, Lord. May we know forgiveness and eternal life and may we just worship you in our lives father god in this service the rest is for you the start is for you everything is for you god we pray in your name amen welcome to wodonga baps that's what i normally do there i normally say welcome um and i think it's an amazing thing isn't it to be here uh, to be the people of God, I, I look out amongst us and um, th- we are so different. We are from different family backgrounds and even though we might all kind of look a bit whitish, but not all, we've still got so different. We're so different in the way we've been brought up, with the way we've been parented. We've got different educations. Uh, we've got uh, different things, that, uh, different employment some of us are always growing up in the country and some are growing up in the city, but we're just so vastly different. And so much potential to be like, I mean, how can we come together and be united? I mean, we're so different, really. But then you think when we come here tonight, there is like, there's, a, there's one thing that unites us people. We are actually the most united people in the world. So um, Galatians 3.28 says, and this is Paul talking to the church in Galatia, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. So nationalities, no longer a difference, no, no longer a problem. Slave 
or free. There's no longer social status that can separate us. There's no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ. We are all one. We are all united in Jesus Christ. Now, we even vary on what we believe here in Jesus, I reckon. But we yet are all one. And Jesus Christ just unites us. That is what we've got. That is what brings us together. So when we gather here to worship God, mate, oh, I'll tell you what, that's amazing. The people of God happened because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. United, made one. And I just love it. And, uh, and it's a great privilege, isn't it, to gather here tonight and worship our God as one people. And I hope it's your prayer because I just long for a deeper and deeper sense of family and fellowship and oneness in here all for the glory of our amazing God. Well, a couple of announcements I want to let you know about. Check out the big screen. Well, good day and uh, good evening. What a great song. What a great song. Hands up those people here, I can see it, who uh, like quizzes, particularly like the Who Am I's. Anyone do those? Yeah, a few people do. Well, I've got one for you to start off with tonight. Okay, so thinking hats on. Who Am I? I'm an Australian movie made in 1981. That's for five points. <laughs> uh, wasn't Mad Max, same character there. I was directed by Peter Weir. I starred Mel Gibson and Mark Lee. Ah, someone's got it, very good. I was set in 1915, I am Gallipoli. Hands up those people who have seen that particular movie. Ah, fair few, very good. I can remember seeing Gallipoli for the first time about 20 years ago and I recently re-watched it uh, this last April and there was one scene in particular that really stood out both times I've watched the movie. It's when the Aussie troops uh, were waiting their turn to go up and over the, the trench. The previous two waves had ended disastrously uh, only moments earlier. And Mel Gibson's character is frantically trying to get uh, back to these troops to, to deliver an order to those in control to, to stop the, or cancel the next charge. The waiting men stood there, knowing when the whistle blew, it would be their turn to go. Without question, they knew they were going to die. Both times I've seen the movie, I've questioned, why did they go? Why did they do it? And I guess the simple answer is obedience. They've been trained to be obedient. God calls us to be obedient to him. He asks us to trust him with our lives and respond to his call. As we go through Exodus 15, 22 to 27, which is our passage tonight, I want you to be thinking what it means to be obedient to God, what it means to trust him. Real obedience, real trust. If you've got your Bibles there tonight, if you'd like to open up and, uh, to Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 to 27. And I'll just read that for us. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. 
Then the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped near, near there, near the water. So, just to put it all into context, a brief bit of background. For those people who have been coming regularly on Sunday night, uh, both Phil and Jonathan have been doing a series on Exodus. The Israelites were under captivity, uh, held as slaves by Pharaoh in Egypt. And they'd been there for a bit over 400 years. And they cried out to God, and God heard them, and he raised up Moses and told Moses, lead these people, let's, let's get them out of Egypt. And Moses went and saw the Pharaoh, and you've heard the story, it took ten plagues before Pharaoh finally conceded, and Moses led the people off. And they left um, Egypt, and they got to the Red Sea. And when they got to the Red Sea, this is the first complaint the Israelites had. There was this huge water there. How are they going to cross the sea? And all of a sudden they turn around and the Egyptians have changed their mind and their chariots and the foot soldiers are bearing down on them. And uh, as the story goes, we know that uh, Moses cried out and parted, God parted the sea and the Israelites crossed over. All the Egyptians got a bath. So this, as we read in our passage tonight, this is the second complaint of the Israelites. The first one, as I just said, was being stuck against the Red Sea. Uh, plenty of water there. This time, there's not enough water. Only a short time earlier, they'd been thinking that they would probably be perfectly happy never to see another drop again. Now, however, the harsh realities of a desert march had set in and they were beginning to fear that they might die of thirst. If only you'd left us alone in Egypt, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. If you think about it, the Israelites, Israelites sorry, did have something to complain about. I mean, water is one of the three, one of the rule of threes. The rule of threes basically states this, three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food, the continuation of human life is seriously in question. So the Israelites had been out in the desert for three days and they hadn't found any water. So they were genuinely concerned and they found themselves in a real difficulty. The circumstances are challenging to say the least and we don't want to underemphasise or ignore that or downplay it in any way. Israelite, Israel sorry, was facing a real hardship in the place that she found herself. They'd just escaped from the Egyptians three days earlier and now they arrived at this oasis, Mara, and there the water was bitter. The bitterness of the water leads to a bitter response on the part of the people. And you put yourself in their shoes. They wouldn't have had that much to be able to take a whole lot of water with them. It's not like they had plastic buckets or water tanks, fancy bottles or those hydration packs that we've got now. Basically, what they could carry in skins would have been all that they had. There also been very few dependable supplies of water along their way when they're walking three days into the desert. So after three long dry days, they get to an oasis and then find the water is undrinkable. Have you ever had water that's been undrinkable? Um, many moons ago, when I married my good wife, Lynn, uh, for the first, nearly the first 12 months of our marriage, we travelled around Australia. Uh, basically, one of the best things uh, we've ever done, and I recommend it to anybody, because it's just the two of you, there's no mortgage, 
There's no well-meaning friends or family. There's no job pressures. It's just the two. And we really learnt to communicate and talk, and that's one of the things that we still do a lot of. Um, we, we still talk to each other quite a lot. <laughs> Most of the time. Anyway, on our travels, we were up in uh, northern Queensland at a place called Maribra, if anyone's ever heard of it. And we were going to head off from there and go out to the Gulf country of Queensland. So I filled up all our water supplies and we headed off. Uh, and that night, Lynn uh, cooked up dinner and it was pretty woeful. And, <laughs> but this is very surprising because Lynn's actually a very good cook. And, and after dinner, we had Milo's and they were even more woeful. So we put more Milo in, and we just we couldn't work out why everything was tasting so bad. So being the great detective, we worked out the Milo tasted all right on its own. What's the other ingredient? Water. So we checked out the water, and it was awful. And I just filled up about 100 litres, filled everything we had up with all this absolutely horrible water. I mean, even making Milo slushies didn't work. And we didn't have any more water for two days after that because we just weren't in an area of Australia where there was lots of water. So after a couple of days, we were starting to get fairly thirsty. So we're back to the thirsty Israelites. Imagine yourself as a mother, and here you are out in the heat of the wilderness, and you've found no water for your babies for three days, and what supplies you had are now exhausted, and you fear watching your children dehydrate and die in the hot desert before you. The trial that Israel was facing was real. And they've come to a place where it seems their exodus will end very quickly in death. If we look at verse 24, so the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? The response of the children of Israel to this difficulty, whilst understandable, is disappointing because their response is one of faithlessness. Israel's response is really a faithless, rebellious response. We see a faith failure in Israel when, as just we've been told earlier in Exodus 15, that the children of Israel believed God because of what he had done to the Egyptians. Now their faith fails. They just don't seem to get it. God is making a people for himself. He has clearly demonstrated his power and freed them from Pharaoh and Egypt. But at the first sign of trouble, it seems that the Israelites have forgotten all of this. Jesus talks about a similar group of people in his parable of the four soils. In Mark chapter 4 we read, Listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. And Jesus went on to say to his followers around him, he says, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed, seed sown in rocky places, hear the word at once and receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Their belief falters. The Israelites were a little bit like the seed, I guess, that fell on the rocky ground. After all the miracles and the rescue from Egypt, they received God with joy. But they have no root. 
when trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. The Israelites faltered in their belief and they grumbled. But let's be honest here. Who can say that you know, we've, amongst us here that we've never faltered in our faith? Who can say that we've never grumbled against God? At times, are we, am I, so different from the Israelites? We might not have lived through the ten plagues or had the Red Sea part before us, but we do have the Bible and we do have Jesus. So what is our excuse? What things in our life get in the way of our faith? It's also interesting to note that the opening verb of verse 24 gives us an assessment of Israel's attitude. So the people grumbled at Moses. This is the first time that the verb grumble or murmur appears in the Old Testament, but it will reappear over and over in the Bible. In Exodus 15, 16, 17, Numbers 14, 16, 17, and in Joshua chapter 9. In every instance, it portrays the rebellious attitude of the Israelites against their leaders, against the God-appointed authority structures, and even against God himself. The grumbling of Israel sorry, becomes the dominant negative theme throughout the Exodus wanderings. Instances of it reoccur repeatedly in the books of Exodus and Numbers. The children of Israel were faithless, and so they would grumble and murmur a dozen times in the first five books of the Bible. No wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that we are to look back at the story of the Exodus and we are to see how they murmured and grumbled and were faithless and we're not to do that. The Apostle Paul holds that up as a negative example to us and he says, don't do it. We are to learn from their negativity. We read on in verse 25, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, Now, Moses can't do anything about the water situation, so he responds in a manner familiar to us, for those people who have been following the Exodus uh, teachings over the last number of Sunday nights. He says, Moses responds, he cries out to God. This is what the Israelites should have done. They should have cried out to God like they did in Exodus chapter 2, 23, 25. I'll just quickly read that for you. It says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. So here we have in Exodus chapter 2, we're reading how the Israelites are crying out to God and how he hears them. But somehow in the midst of this particular trial, being in the desert for three days without water, they seem to have forgotten God. I sometimes wonder how, after all they've been through, all the miracles, you know, the last one only three days before, that so, how they could so easily miss the plot. So easily, it seems, just to forget about God, forget about his awesome power, forget about his love. But then I think about the amazing things God has done in my life and how many times I've ignored him or tried to do it on my own or do it my way when I should have just cried out to him. Uh, again, I ask the question, you know, am I, sometimes are we, any different from the Israelites at times? One last point on Exodus chapter 2 uh, before we move on is that God's rescue does not always come at the moment we want it. God had promised to bring the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt. The people had waited a long time for that promise to be kept, but God rescued them when he knew the time had come, when the right time had come. God knows the best time to act. When we feel that God has forgotten us in our troubles, we need to remember that God has a time schedule that we can't see and often don't understand. 
So we're back in Exodus 15. In verse 25, there we have Moses crying out to God. But if we read on, And the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Moses cries out to God, and the Lord miraculously sweetens the waters. God shows Moses a piece of wood and has him throw it into the water. Now, there's no naturalistic explanation given for what happened, uh, for solving this particular mystery of the transformation of bitter water into sweet water. The wood that Moses tossed into the water did not have a magical effect either. It was simply a symbolic act in the anticipation of God working a miracle, in much the same way when Moses lifted his staff and parted the Red Sea. The staff was just a symbol of God's miracle happening. There is clearly something miraculous going on here. This is God acting and the whole passage emphasises that the Israelites are totally dependent upon God for their survival. They must learn to trust him and know that he can provide. It is God who made the waters drinkable, not the piece of wood. So what does this small part of our passage we've done so far tell us about God? What does it reveal about God's character? Well, three things quickly come to mind. Firstly, it shows that he is patient, he is caring and he is compassionate. There are no words of rebuke, no words of chastisement, but rather just a sweet and gracious answer from God. The second thing is it shows us that he listens to our pleas. Moses cried out and God listened. If we cry out to the hymn, he still listens today. And the third thing it shows is that his grace abounds. God could have easily just wiped his hands of the Israelites, but he didn't. The same patient, loving, full of grace God is still here for you and me today. Despite everything, people just don't seem to get God. They still fail to understand him and his purpose. In Exodus, we see that God was making a people for himself. Today, he's still trying to do that. God demonstrated his power to the Israelites through many miracles. The people were freed, but they'd forgotten the point. For us, God has demonstrated his power through Jesus Christ. He's demonstrated his grace and compassion by having his son die on a cross for us. But like the Israelites, many people today have forgotten the point. Don't lose sight of what God has done and wants to do for you. Now we get to the last part of verse 25 and verse 26. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Here we see a command from God. God follows up a miracle, as we're told in verse 25, by giving a decree and a law. That decree is not actually recorded for us in this passage, but the point is this. It's not enough for the people of God to sing and rejoice, but they've also got to listen to him and obey him. They must not only, um, not only sing and rejoice in deliverance, but they must, must, again, must obey him. Freedom from service to Pharaoh doesn't mean anything goes for the children of Israel. Freedom from the service of Pharaoh means freedom to serve God. Service to Pharaoh was tyranny, whereas service to God is, in itself is true freedom. But true freedom always means obedience to God's word, to listen to what God has to say. What God is telling his people at this crucial point in their young life as a people is, stick to me 
and you will never relive the horrors of Egypt again. If you ignore my law, although you will not return to Egypt physically, you will be treated as they were. And the first thing that Israel does after crossing the sea is to rebel by not trusting God and his goodness. And Egypt-like fate awaits them if they continue down that particular path. God's threat is severe, but it's precisely so at the outset of their relationship together. Uh, as a teacher, uh, the start of the year is always exciting. You know, there's new books, new pens, new school bag, new uniform, new shoes, new haircut, and that's just me. Okay? Uh, and, and then you've got sort of all the kids there as well. And there's that anticipation when you, you first walk into the classroom, uh, your first lesson, you've got this brand new class, and you sort of walk in, and all the kids are there, and you have a bit of a look around, and you, you sort of say a few good days to those kids you've seen, and you have a few inward groans when you see some of the kids, and, oh, OK, here we go, this is going to be great. Um, but there's this real excitement. And one of the things that's really important to do is to start the class off in the way you want it to continue. And that often means being quite firm. Fair and reasonable, but firm. And then if you know, things progress, it's, all, it's easy later on if you wanted to back off a little bit. But if you go in really easy and then try and toughen up, kids rebel and they don't like it. And parents would know the same sort of thing. That if you're trying to discipline uh, you know, your child when they're a teenager, but you've let them run amok when they're young, uh, the teenager's going to rebel. You need to you know, discipline and train your child whilst they're young. And there's a verse in the Bible that tells us that, Proverbs 22, verse 6. It says, tell us, sorry, it says, Train a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not turn from it. So here we have the young nation of Israel, if you like, and we've got God being fairly severe with them, right at the infancy, if you like, of their relationship together. God was there for them. And he, his discipline may seem harsh at times, but rest assured, his love uh, for them is stronger than anything that uh, yeah, they would ever have to face. And his relationship, well, he wants the relationship he wants with us is there as well. Is a, a, one of my favourite verses in the Bible is Romans 8, 38 and 39. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in verse 31, What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's great stuff, I think, anyway. That's good. Back to Exodus 15, verse 25, just to recap a little bit. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and the law for them and there he tested them. Notice the last part of the verse there. He said, and there he tested them. One of the questions that Exodus 15 raises is that it tells us that the Lord put them to the test. Well, what does this mean? Well, presumably, presumably sorry, this refers to the testing which they underwent at Marah. And of course, they failed that test. Was this testing beyond them? They'd just seen all that God had done and still they did not trust him. They failed it. Now I want to say very quickly, God's purpose in testing was not to produce failure. Remember, James tells us in James 1.13 that God does not tempt. In other words, he does not test us for the purpose of causing us to stumble. 
The Bible tells us that God will not test us beyond our limits to obey. But God's test to the children of Israel reveals the weakness of their faith and their need for him. When God tests us, he does so by bringing us into situations which call for trust. Our endurance and obedience proves that our trust is real so that by exercising our faith in the face of new challenges, our trust in God can develop and mature until we come to see that everything that happens is under his divine supervision and for his purposes. Jeremiah 29, 11-14 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God tests us to develop our trust and our faith in him, so we will learn to rely 100% on him. One of the great things about being an outdoor education teacher is I get to take groups of students out of school and put them into challenging uh, environments during different outdoor adventure activities. Uh, one of the activities I enjoy the most is abseiling. Has anybody here ever abseiled before? Okay, so we have a fair few people, very good. Well, for those people that don't know what abseiling is, basically it's descending a cliff face using a rope. And uh, it, it is quite challenging because there you are, you're on this rope, you've got a harness and you're standing on the edge of this cliff and you're sort of leaning back looking down and uh, why anyone would walk off backwards off a perfectly good cliff uh, is a question a lot of students ask. So, and it all comes back down to trust. I mean, the rope that the students are on is probably good for maybe a tonne and a half, two tonne. The harnesses won't break uh, you know, after about 750 kilo sort of force and all the bits of gear that you've got are all really upgraded. So the safety in the gear is huge. And, but it still comes down to trust. And I can tell the students that. This is all going to, you'll be fine, no worries. And I offer them words of encouragement like, there's no way I'm going to let you fall because if you do, there's a stack of paperwork I've got to do. Okay? <laughs> and that, they respond well to that. Um, but basically, so it comes down to trust. They've got to trust the gear. They've got to trust what I'm saying. They've got to trust their own capabilities. We'll come back to the abseiling in a moment. Well, actually, one other thing about the abseiling is when they're standing on the edge there and they've been there for some time and they're, they're questioning all this trust thing, there's an interesting thing that happens. Uh, and we call it, the, a couple of blokes to give me a hand, we call it the Elvis. Uh, does everyone remember how Elvis dances or used to dance? You know, his leg would go out like this. I know Jonathan sang this morning, but I'm not going to stand up here and dance. <laughs> but basically, if those, the old film, film clips of Elvis, he had his, his legs were twitching, going all which way. And, and as, as the student's still standing on the edge of the cliff, and they've been there for a while, the old legs start twitching because of the muscles, and, and we call that the Elvis. And, and that's a good sign because they're going to have to do something because their legs are just, their muscles are screaming and their mind's saying, no, no, but their legs are going, go. Yeah, so it's all very exciting at that particular point. <laughs> the Bible talks about people testing God. Uh, just before that, we're talking about God testing us. But you know, people do test God. Psalm 95 verse 9 says, Your father's tested and tried me. Testing God involves putting him on probation, basically withholding trust-pending evidence. For the Israelites, it means doubting whether he who had provided sufficient in the past was still sufficient. 
Now things were not going so well at the present. There was also an element of challenge to God, demanding that he will prove his worth over and over again. If against all probabilities he gets us out of this mess, then we will consider believing. But in the meantime, we will suspend both faith and obedience. For these reasons, testing God is deeply wrong and sinful. The sin of testing God by Pharaoh resulted in the ten plagues and then the drowning in the Red Sea. We see this in Exodus 5 verse 2 where Pharaoh says at the beginning of it all, Who is the Lord that I should heed him? And then chapter 7 verse 5, God says, The Egyptians will know who the Lord is, all right. So Jesus also warns us about testing God in Matthew chapter 4. Here the devil was trying to tempt Jesus. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So back to our passage. In verse 26, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is what we call a conditional promise. If they obey, then they will not experience disasters and diseases that happen to Egypt. God promised that if the people obeyed him, they would be free from the diseases that plagued the Egyptians. Little did they know that many of the moral laws that God gave them later were designed to keep them free from sickness. For example, if everyone throughout the ages had kept God's law that sex is for marriage only, then today there'd be no such thing as sexually transmitted diseases. If we want God to care for us, we need to submit to his directions for living. Finally, the next place God takes the Israelites is to an oasis. We read there in verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Here God shows his care and provision for the people. It's kind of a rebuke to say, I told you so, that I can heal you, that I can provide for you. It's also interesting to note that there is a spring for every tribe and there is a tree for every elder in Israel. It seems to suggest the fullness of God's provision for all his people. Now I know that you've uh, been sitting there patiently listening and and thank you for that. Uh, And as one who sits out there uh, way more than one who stands up here, um, I think I might know what some of you might be thinking. Possibly, yeah Marty, well that's all good, learn a few things about the Israelites, but what does that have to do with me? How does this affect my life? Well hopefully some of the following will help you answer that particular question. We're going to make a jump into the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13, Paul goes to great lengths to warn us not to follow the examples of the Israelites. It's worth a read sometime, but tonight I just want us to focus on a couple of verses. Uh, Verses 11-13. It says, These things happened to them as examples for us. And Paul's talking about the Israelites wandering through the desert. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptations to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, 
He will show you a way out so that you can endure. Paul talks of an end of the age, end of an age. Well, the end of the age has come upon us, and that is the promises God made that he would have a people for his very own are now fulfilled in the church. And God expects his people who have been redeemed by Christ, just like the Old Testament Israelites were redeemed by Exodus, to live for him in godliness. The difference, of course, is God provides a way for us now that enables us to overcome testing, unlike the Israelites. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the power of sin has been broken and we have been redeemed not from a place but from an empty way of life. Unlike the Israel of old, we now have God's help to overcome testing. His provision through Christ is the Holy Spirit living in us. So there are two main things I want you to take away from Exodus 15 to 9. Firstly, the importance of trusting God. We've already seen some of the consequences of testing God. We saw what happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. We read about the biblical implications of testing God and Jesus' teaching on it. When we test God, we're actually saying, I don't trust you, God. The Bible says this about trusting God. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's in Proverbs 3, 5. It also tells us that he who trusts in himself is a fool. Still, most of us have difficulty trusting God, at least at one point or another, in our walk with him. So why is it so difficult for us to trust God? Well, there's probably many reasons for that. Um, one of them possibly being that God's ways don't always make sense to us. I mean, if you look back again in the Old Testament, God told Noah to build an ark. It may have never rained for a long time at that point, and the nearest body of water might have been miles and miles or kilometres and kilometres away. It couldn't have made much sense to Noah at all. But Noah trusted God and did what he was asked. We want life to make sense. We always want to set our own terms and timetables. However, our studies in Exodus have clearly shown that God has a plan and he will work it out in his time. God tests us so that our trust in him will increase. As in abseiling, uh, it's no good standing on the edge of the cliff saying, I have faith the rope will hold me, yes, no worries, and just standing there. You have to physically step out in faith, and literally in that example, and put your trust in the rope, put your trust in God. We have to put our faith into action. We go back to the bitter pool. God told Moses to throw in a piece of wood into the water. Moses had to physically do something. He had to put his faith into action. And we sort of imagine the scene. So we've got all these people gathered around this oasis. They're hot, they're dry, they're thirsty, they're grumbling. They, or before they grumble, sorry, they get there, they race up, have a drink of the water, and yuck, okay, it's bitter. Then they grumble. They give Moses a hard time. Moses is standing there, scratching his head, pulling his beard, wondering what to do. And finally, he cries out to God. God gives Moses a message. He said, throw a piece of wood in. And so Moses picks up the piece of wood that God showed him, throws it into the water, turns to the people and says, all fixed. And you imagine the people going, yeah, right. <laughs> sure, Moses. But the thing is, someone had to taste the water. Someone had to be first to try it. Someone had to put their trust into physical action and do something. A preacher was caught in a terrible flood 
and the waters were rising. And he was standing on the veranda and a man in a canoe came paddling past and offered the preacher a ride. The preacher says, no, no thanks, no, I'm fine, I put my trust in the Lord. After, as the waters kept rising, the preacher was forced actually up on top of, his, on top of the roof. Anyway, a tinny comes along. And uh, again, the gentleman offered the preacher a ride and the preacher says, no, thank you, I, I put my trust in the Lord. Finally, the waters are getting higher and higher and the preacher is sort of standing on the top of his chimney. And the SES helicopter comes hovering over and they call out to him and the preacher goes, no, I'm fine, thank you, I put my trust in the Lord. Well, the waters rose further and the preacher drowned. Anyway, he went up before the Lord and uh, he said, said to uh, the Lord, why didn't you honour my trust and save me? And the Lord replied, what do you mean I didn't? I sent two boats and a helicopter. You laugh there, that's all right. <laughs> we learn that it is through trust that a relationship with God strengthens and our love for him grows. We can trust in many things. None, however, offers the protection plan, the long-term security or the benefits that trusting in God alone offers. All the other things in which we may tr- place our trust can fail, but God never fails. In the words of King David, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail or forsake you. The second and the last thing we can learn about from our passage tonight is about being obedient. The final thing is on this issue of obedience. Jesus tells us in John fifteen nine, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. God's grace for us demands obedience. We are saved by grace, not by what we have done, but what God has done. Remember the conditional promise in Exodus 15? If the Israelites obeyed, then they won't experience disaster. Our promise is different. Because we have been saved, we can obey, for our salvation is from sin, not location. God desires an obedient people, but many people today are confusing obedience with agreement. To obey means to carry out instructions or orders, to behave and act in accordance with these instructions. To agree means to be of the same opinion, to give consent. God wants more than our agreement with his commands. He wants our obedience. So what is the difference? Put simply, we can agree with God that all his commands are good and should be followed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we will obey them. A soldier is trained to obey a command without question, whether he agrees with it or not. The soldiers going up and over in Gallipoli probably didn't agree with what they are about to do, but they still obeyed. God wants us to obey his commands like this. The other thing that affects our obedience is also that we live in a culture of choice. We're constantly told that choice is good, or if you don't like it, simply choose something else. A number of years back, I had the good fortune to go overseas to visit Lynn's brother in America. Uh, and America is often referred to as the land of opportunity. I'm not so sure about that, but certainly it's the land of choice. And when it came to food, we were just staggered by the variety of choice that was available. If you ordered something with potato, the waitresses would just rattle off, you know, hash, mash, fried, and just go down this amazing list. 
of which I could never understand. I always had to say, excuse me, repeat it, and then they'd just flat out go through it again. After about six weeks of travelling, we really got tired of always having to choose. I mean, back in Australia, if you went and ordered a hamburger, the biggest choice you had to make was whether you wanted plain or with a lot. Uh, that has changed a fair bit since then. This was back in the early 90s. And uh, we got to the stage where we just had had enough. Lynn had had enough. So we went into uh, a fast food place and we thought, oh, we can just pick something. And anyway, so Lynn's rocked up at the counter and she said, oh, two hamburgers, please. And then the, the girl started. Do you want this pickles, that mustard, this, this, this? Do you want this? And Lynn's just pulling her hair out. And uh, so choice, this, this whole smorgasbord of whether it's food, whether it's music, entertainment, we're bombarded with choice. Unfortunately, many Christians and some churches are applying this ideal, this ideal of choice to their obedience to God. In verse 24 of Exodus 15, it says, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. If you look closely at this verse, there are four things that we must do to truly be obedient to God. The first is that we must listen carefully to what God says. The Bible is God's word for us today. We read it and study it carefully. We will hear what he is saying to us. The second thing is we must do what is right in God's eyes, not the world's eyes. God's eyes. Often what the world may be giving a thumbs up to, God is giving a thumbs down to. The third thing is we must pay attention to all his commands. And the fourth point, we must keep all his decrees, even the tough ones the ones that may affect something you really like doing but is not what God wants. Notice the use of the word all in verse 24. It's not some. It's not the ones that I like or the ones that I choose or avoid so that I won't be unpopular at home, work or school. Obedience to God, obeying all his commands, is what God desires of us. It's a job lot. The only choice we have about it is whether or not we will do it. If God blew the whistle for you to go up and over the trench, would you respond? Would I respond? Being human, though, we will fail. Whilst God wants us to obey him 100%, he also knows that we can't do it, just as the Israelites couldn't do it. This pattern of human failure set the scene for God to do something decisive about it. He sent his son Jesus to earth as a man. Jesus was tested in the wilderness and did not sin. He passed the test, and so he can save us from our sin. When we read these Old Testament stories as examples, we are also to remember whom Christ is and what he has done. We can trust God that we will not be tested beyond our ability and that he will provide a way out. From our trust, we can learn obedience. As a teacher, there is a particular saying uh, that I like um, because I've seen it to be true. It goes like this. It says, I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. And I'll say one more time for you. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. Tonight you have heard God's word on trusting and obedience. Chances are by tomorrow some of you will have forgotten most of it. When you see one of your friends or family trusting or obeying God, you will remember some of it. 
However, it's not until you actually start doing that you will really understand what it means to trust God and be obedient to him in all things. Do you trust God today or are you still standing on the cliff edge impersonating Elvis? In life, are you grumbling at the bitter well instead of crying out to God? Are you obeying all of God's commands or is your obedience more of a smorgasbord of choice? Do you have a relationship with the living God, the God who sent his own son to die for you? If you have any problems answering these questions, can I encourage you to seek out someone at the front of the church after the service and talk with them? Don't be stubborn and hard-hearted and hard-headed like many of the Israelites and don't miss out on the promised land. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? God, thank you for your word that speaks so clearly to us. And God, some of us uh, tonight have really sensed you saying, uh, you need to trust me more. Uh, Some of us have really been challenged to um, take the steps to put our faith completely in you and actually do something that you're calling us to do that we we've kind of doubted you from and we just pray tonight god that as you speak to us that we would hear your voice and, and take that step of trusting you more and god for some of us tonight have known and just been painfully aware as as marty's spoken that there's been areas in our life that aren't we're not obeying you in And God, we've just seen tonight how much you hate that and how much you want obedience and how much you have said, I will take care of you, I'll look after you, but I want you to obey me. And God, tonight, uh, some of us are just so thankful as we hear that you've sent your son to die so that we can be forgiven tonight. And we just uh, pray now, God, that we would uh, trust in your forgiveness through Jesus and obey you in our lives. I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and gives us the strength to overcome in areas where we're weak. And we just thank you uh, for speaking to us, God. And we just want to say we want to be those that are, uh, are responding tonight as you're calling us to. We're responding, God. We hear your voice. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just make-